for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, these are your words. You inspired Paul to write these very words, and you have preserved them so that we, uh, nearly 2,000 years later, would have them which means we need you if they are going to do their work in us. You must work in them. You must apply them to our hearts. You must change them. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do just that, even now. For it's in Christ's name that we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Folks that have been around... uh, Grace Covenant long enough know that from time to time, um, what's what seems to be a sermon also ends up being part like English class. Occasionally, uh, you, you never know uh, what you're going to get. Uh, the Bible follows a pattern. Um, the gospel follows a pattern. The Bible follows this pattern. The Christian life follows this pattern, and the pattern is like goes like this. You ready? It's two whole parts. I think you can handle it. It's two things: indicative. Then the imperative. Oh, you know, hold on. Uh, I don't even know what those words mean. An indicative is a statement, a sentence that says what is. I am hungry. Uh, we are at church. An imperative is a command. It's a statement that says, now go and do. Uh, clean your room. Uh, wash your hands. Uh, eat your peas. That sort of stuff. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. The Bible follows that pattern. The Christian life follows that pattern. First you are, then you do. Not the other way around. Uh, the Bible always describes our and, and, and commands our duty in light of who we are as believers. Uh, you might even want to say it's instead of, okay, indicative and imperative, that's too much. Let's go with because and therefore. Okay, that, that I get, right? That makes sense to me. It makes a little more sense to me than indicative imperative does. Because these things are true of you, therefore, go and do, go and live. That's always the pattern. Uh, there's one catch right here in Titus 2, and that is that Paul wrote them, although the logic's the same, the way he wrote them are reversed. The first part of chapter 2 says, here's your duty in the home. Here's the way, Titus, here's what you should be teaching older men to do and to be like. Here's what you should teach older women to do and to be like. Who should then in turn be teaching younger women to do and be like. And also teach uh, younger men to have self-control and all those sorts. So he, he writes the pattern in the reverse order. But the logic's still the same. Because notice 
the very first word of verse 11. For. Go and do these things, verses 1 through 10. Why? For, verses 11 to 15 are true. Because, verses 11 to 15 are true. So that Paul follows the pattern, even though he writes them in reverse order. In his mind, the duty he writes in the first ten verses are grounded in the indicatives of verses 11 to 15. You might even say that he teaches what accords with sound doctrine, verse 1. Paul commands him, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice he's not saying teach sound doctrine. He's saying teach a life that grows out of sound doctrine. Well, there's the life, verses 1 to 10. And here in verses 11 to 15, we get that sound doctrine. We get the the basis for the life commanded in verses 1 to 10. So what is that sound doctrine that he uh, refers to in these verses? Notice, first of all, he begins with grace has appeared in verse 11. You should know that appearing and beginning uh, aren't the same. They don't mean the same thing. Just because something suddenly appears doesn't, doesn't mean that it didn't already exist. It just means that now you can see it. You go outside on a cloudy night. And you can't see the stars. You can't see the moon. You, you, you can't see what's up there. You, you can't see the International Space Station go by. My phone tells me it's going by. My little app pops up and says, hey, it's up there. And you walk outside and you can't see it. <clears throat> that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just doesn't appear to you because there are things in the way. So grace appears. Grace has appeared. Verse 11. But how do you see grace? Unmerited favor. How do you see that? How do you recognize that? It's not a thing that you can sort of touch and taste and see. It's not a cup of coffee. It's not lunch. It's not something that sort of tangible that you can actually see when it appears. So how do you see grace? What does he mean that grace has appeared? Well, he actually tells us in verses 13 and 14. Because he says that grace appeared when Jesus Christ appeared the first time here on earth. Yes, you have to say the first time because, as we'll see in a minute, there's going to be a second time. We haven't had it yet. It hadn't come. Uh, But there has been a first time. Christ has come once. He's going to come again. Uh, But grace appeared when Christ appeared on earth the first time. Okay, well, why did He come? What was He doing? What was the point that, that He would come to earth at all? Well, we're told in verse 11, He was bringing salvation for all people. Don't read that the wrong way. The Bible does not teach that all people everywhere, regardless of anything, 
will be saved. The Bible doesn't teach universal salvation. Don't, don't read all people and go, well, see, everybody's going to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. If, if, if the Bible taught that, then, then uh, Luke uh, 16 uh, would make no sense. When, when Jesus tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man dies and goes to hell, and, and Lazarus, not that Lazarus, goes to heaven, and he's at Abraham's side, and, and the rich man has all his torment. Well, I mean, if everyone goes to heaven, then Jesus telling that story is lying. Uh, so the Bible doesn't teach universal salvation. Don't read all people, meaning every single individual person. Look at the context. Who are the people Paul just finished mentioning in verse 10 or 9? Slaves. Bondservants. You know, there are people out there, and by out there, they're never in here, right? They're not the people in here. They're, they're always out there. There are people in the world that you would decide you would never share the gospel with them because they're too far gone. You might think to yourself, well, this person is insanely rich, insanely wealthy, and of great influence and power and prominence in this community or this state or this country. They have their reward. They're trusting in that. I'm really not going to waste my time talking to them about Jesus because, for crying out loud, they're not even really going to give me the time of day. There are people that we decide are so high that we wouldn't even speak to them, much less speak to them of Christ. The truth is, there are actually people so low that we also wouldn't speak to them, much less speak to them of Christ. Paul just has finished talking about old men, old, older men, older women, Younger women, younger men. Oh, you, Titus, and slaves. In other words, salvation has come for all kinds of people. Those bond servants were members of the same church as everyone else, as their masters for that matter. That alone tells you that that kind of slavery is something different from the slavery we had here in the States. These are bondservants who are members of the same church, equals at the foot of the cross, even with their master. And so Paul says, grace, the grace of God appeared. And when he did, he brought salvation for all kinds of people, the high, the low, the Jew, the Gentile uh, and everyone in between. But notice, he also gives us an explanation of that salvation in verse 14. There's the gospel in a nutshell right there in verse 14. Christ came who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus didn't come and really give instructions. He came to be our Savior. He didn't come and say, now, 
If you'll do these things, then I will accept you. If you'll, if you'll keep this list, then the Father will uh, receive you. He doesn't come and give, well, if you'll just take this. He comes and gives of Himself. He Who gave Himself. He appeared on earth as a man in the flesh, fully human, fully divine, all so that He might redeem us from lawlessness. All to be an offering, a, a substitute to take our place. Because you see, we, verse 14, we had lawless deeds. We were impure, verse 14, and in need of forgiveness for that lawlessness. That's exactly why Christ came. And that is in itself grace. Grace has appeared when Christ came the first time so that He might make that exchange. Father, I'll take their punishment and they take my righteousness. He came offering Himself to, to bear the punishment that our sin deserves. Grace has appeared. But notice that that grace does something. Verse 12. Grace not only has appeared, but grace also trains. A few minutes ago, and here's, here's why. I, I, I didn't need to warn John that we were taking a long confession of sin. As soon as I finished sort of calling his attention to it, even though he'd had the bulletin for days, he was well aware of what I was asking him to do. The lady that prints the bulletins kind of emailed me and said this was a challenge. I almost couldn't get it all on there. I recognize it was longer than usual and even some of you without any prompting whatsoever decided to come and say, hey, look, uh, we must have been really bad the last couple of weeks. Somebody's done something because this is really, really... Well, we use that for two reasons. One, John pointed out very obviously this is Reformation Sunday. It's the, the last Sunday before Reformation Day, the, the October 31st, it's... 501 years, um, year anniversary of uh, Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door uh, in Wittenberg. But we also used it to call attention to this indicative imperative. Because you know how the Ten Commandments begin? If you say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, you're wrong. You started too late. Exodus 20, when, when God gives the Ten Commandments, He grounds the Ten Commandments in, Hey Israel, I'm the God that has already saved you. I'm the God that brought you out of Israel. Remember when you were in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt, not Israel, in Egypt, in a foreign country, under the oppression of that Egyptian Pharaoh? Remember that? Because you're not there anymore. You know why you're not there anymore? Because I saved you. That's when you get the Ten Commandments. Even the Ten Commandments reflect the indicative and the imperative. I have saved you. I have delivered you. Now, here's how you might live to bring me honor and glory. And did you even notice? This didn't strike me until we were doing it this morning. Luther picked up on that in every single part of his 
in every answer, in every response. What does that mean? We must love and honor God. Then you get the answer. It follows that, that standard indicative imperative pattern. Grace trains us to live to honor and glorify God. And that training involves two things. And Luther did this in his answers also. If you woke up tomorrow and decided you were going to train for a triathlon after I called the doctors to have your brain checked, I would assume that your training regimen would involve two things. There are going to be some things that you eat or drink that you would probably stop eating and stop drinking. There are some things that you do, maybe some places you go, a pattern you keep that you would say, I'm going to not do that anymore. If I'm going to train for a triathlon, I have to stop drinking you know, 15 sodas a day. That's probably unhealthy. Probably a little too much sugar for, you know. Um, but you also would say, and I'm going to start doing something else. So there are things you would say no to. But then you'd go, you know, I probably should eat my vegetables. I should probably, I don't know, get up and run sometimes. Maybe swim a little, bike a little. i got to add exercise to my regular routine. So there are things you would say no to, and there are things you would say yes to. That's exactly what Paul gives us in this passage. Grace trains you to say no to some things and to say yes to other things. Look at verse 12. First, grace trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. In our world, what qualifies as lawless deeds, what qualifies as as lawlessness, seems to that list seems to get smaller and smaller in every single day, every single year in our world. But here, that lawlessness is ungodliness and worldly passions. It's, it's those things that, those worldly passions that consume us, those things that we lust after, which isn't just a sexual term. It's anything that our flesh longs to have and must have. And for that matter, when it reaches that point, you no longer have uh, have God as your the, have got no other gods before me. You now have gods before Him. Uh, that God is either the thing or it's even your own appetite, your own, own hunger and thirst <clears throat> for that thing. It could be money. It could be wealth. It could be the praise of men or honor or glory or power. <clears throat> it could be anything that rightly belongs to God that we seek for ourselves. Worldly passions, that, that inward selfish desire for me, for myself, for my stuff. And you can notice something about these words. Ungodliness is generally sort of an external. It's the things we do and the things we say. The, the, the word kind of has a, an outward, external sort of uh, reflection to it, uh, aspect to it. Worldly passions are, are inward. 
They're internal. They're desires. They're things that, quite honestly, you can't even see my worldly passions necessarily. We can't always see that in each other until they reach for it. Until they hunger and thirst for it so much that they will even forsake the honor and glory of Christ to have it. Those are the things that, apart from Christ, we pursue. But Paul says grace trains us to say no to those things. It trains us to hate and forsake our sin. It trains us to, to, to smell that sort of repugnant stench of sin in our nostrils and say, I don't want to smell that anymore. I want no part of that. But it also trains us to do to say yes. I don't know if you've ever seen um, that the Comedy Central sketch, I guess it is, of Bob Newhart uh, as, a, as a counselor. This lady comes in. She has this fear, this deep-seated fear of being buried alive in a box. And his counseling uh, basically uh, lands at stop it. Well, just stop it. And he, he go, and she's like, well, that just sounds... Stop it! But I, I, I mean, it really bothered... Stop it! That's his answer. You know, I don't think the Bible ever says, stop it. It always says, replace it. God didn't just deliver Israel from Egypt and say, now, good luck with all that. But I'm taking you out of Egypt and put you to the promised land. That's the same promise you and I have. I've delivered you from sin and and from the the wages and punishment that you deserve because of your sin and now good luck with all that no that's not what he says and i will deliver you i will sanctify you and ultimately glorify you and land you in with me in eternity well here paul says stop it don't do that say no to this but here are the things you say yes to and you see the list in verse 13. Uh, verse 12. Uh, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. There's that word again. The, the ring, the one ring that rules them all. Self-control. Rather than yielding to worldly passions, you actually now, because of God's grace, you not only should have, but can have self-control. You can exercise control over those worldly passions. You can live upright and godly lives rather than ungodliness. Grace enables us to live upright and godly lives. Lives that exhibit self control. Paul, I think, uses a little double meaning here at the end of verse 12. Notice he says, to live like this in the present age. We could take in the present age sort of one of, of two ways. Paul could be saying that this age is contrary to that. You can say no to ungodliness you can say no to worldly passions. You can live uh, self-controlled, uh, God upright and godly lives even though this present age is against those things. 
even though this present age is contrary to that, even though this present age would tell you, no, you can't, and for that matter, you really shouldn't. You should, you do you, you be you, and, and you do you better than anybody else because nobody else is going to do you. Nobody else is going to care, right? I mean, that's the world we live in. Or it could just mean that this age, that, that it's it, more of a time reference than a, than a guilt reference. Uh, that, that we, yes, we live in a world that's, that's contrary to that, but he may just mean simply today. In other words, grace is more than just a get out of hell free card. Grace is more than, well, I've gotten saved and how I live doesn't really matter. That's not what he's saying because this passage comes right on the heels of how you live matters in verses 1 through 10. We can live that life, verses 1 through 10, in this present age. Why? Because grace has appeared and because grace trains. But notice, finally, there's one more hope. And that hope is that glory will appear. Grace has appeared. Glory will appear. Notice verse 13. We're waiting for Christ to return. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll probably say it almost every time the word hope appears in this passage because somebody will miss it. Uh, We use hope to mean wish. I sure would like for. I hope my team wins. I hope uh, someone in our congregation wins the lottery. I hope... uh, Right? That's what we do, right? I would really like for this to be true. I have no control, no no certainty, no assurance that it will be, but I sure hope it is going to be. That's not the Bible's use of hope. When the Bible says hope, it means expect. That it's a sure and certain event that you just are waiting. It's, it's, it's your dog looking out the window because he knows you're coming home. It's the kids when mom's away for the weekend and they spend the entire weekend asking dad, and yes, we're offended by this, when's mom coming home? They know she's coming. They know she's going to be back. Is it time yet? Is, is she here? Do you live like that anticipating the return of Christ? Do you live like that going, I know He's coming. I don't know when, but I know it's sure and it's certain and I'm longing for it. I'm hungering for it. I'm anticipating it. I can't wait for it to happen, for that day to get here. Truth is, I've known people... They can do some really weird things with their eyes. You know, the, 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 the friends in high school or middle school, probably was more of a middle school thing, who could turn their upper eyelids inside out and then walk around with the inside out of their, you know, their eyelids. That's kind of gross and creepy. Don't do that. Um, yeah, your eyes will stick that way. Don't even try. Um, the, you know, the, the, they can make them twitch really fast and it's sort of just creepy and that's probably appropriate for Halloween week. People that, you know, you can look one way and make it look like you can move them individually. And there are people that can do some kind of weird things with their eyes. Paul wants you to do something weird with your eyes in this passage. He wants you 
to take one eye and look behind you at grace having appeared and to look at the cross. Meanwhile, your other eye is looking ahead to the return of Christ. Now, I don't know how that works. You work on that and get back with me. But that's exactly Paul's command here. You live now, but you don't live only now. You live now, but while you're living now, you're looking at the cross and you're looking at the return of Christ. You're looking at the fact that grace has appeared and that one day He will come in glory. You're looking back at the fact that the first time Christ came, He came as prophet and priest. The Word bringing the Word of salvation and as the priest offering even Himself as the sacrifice to take our place. And you're looking ahead to the day when He, when he comes back, He comes back as King. In all His glory, crown on His head, no longer on a donkey, but on a white horse of royalty to take up His power and reign and rule for the rest of eternity over His people in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First, just a reminder, you have to get the order right. You cannot say to yourself, well, God loves me because I'm good. You can't take credit for uh, your relationship with Christ because of what you've done. You don't get to look at the Father and go, aren't you glad you've got me on your team? You, I mean, it's a good thing. I, I chose you, God. Because, you know, it's, it's a really good thing that I, I came to you because, you know, imagine how much weirder and, and worse things would be if I wasn't on your team. You have to have the indicative and the imperative in the right order. First the because, then the therefore. First we're changed by the gospel, then we are enabled by His Spirit and by His grace to live for Him. We cannot earn our salvation. We can't gain His favor. We can't live for Christ until grace appears in our lives. A second application that may really just be a continuation of that one. This reminds you of your greatest need. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, then looking for His return should scare you. Because you will be punished. Don't look ahead. Don't look at now. You look back. You look back at the cross and there find the grace to be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, your greatest need is not do better. It's not try harder. It's not, well, okay, I'll just help some more you know, old ladies across the street. I'll, I'll take some food to my neighbors and that'll balance out all the bad stuff. It doesn't work that way. Your greatest need is the cross of Christ. Go there. A third application from this passage. Uh, there are Christians out there in the world and they're sort of in our PCA kind of tribe. Uh, they will so emphasize the indicative that they will never speak of an imperative. They will so emphasize the because that they will never mention a therefore. 
They insist that our greatest need is always, even as Christians, to be just reminded of your justification, reminded of your acceptance by God because of Christ. And in their mind, since we can't keep the law anyway, why bother? They'll so emphasize the because that there is no therefore. Well, this passage reminds us that yes, there actually is an imperative. Yes, the indicative is real. But there is an imperative in light of that indicative. There is a because, but there's also a therefore. And the first half of this chapter was the therefore. If you want to go back, you can find out if you're, if you're kind of new here this morning and you're showing up all of a sudden, you can reach back through the last few weeks on our website and listen to old sermons. God's Word does tell us how we ought to live to bring honor and glory to our Heavenly Father. And this passage reminds us of that. In fact, really in many ways, this passage isn't about making good works possible. This passage is actually more about them being necessary. That if you really are a new creature, if you really have been made new from the inside out, it changes the things you love. It changes your passions. It changes your hungers and your thirst. And it makes you a new person. We live by grace because we're new people. So may God grant us the grace to live with our eyes looking in two different directions. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Your grace and mercy shown to us in Christ. We are indeed truly unworthy. It is favor that we have not merited. It is favor that we have not, because of our righteousness, because of our goodness, earned. And we thank You that grace has appeared in time and space when Christ came the first time, but it also has appeared in our lives that we might trust in Him alone for our salvation. Father, would You train us by that grace to live with eyes looking in two different directions. For the honor and glory of our Savior, we pray. Amen.